Thank you so much for being here. If I have not met you personally, uh, my name is Jackie Robinson Ivy, and I have the honor of serving as chair of the board of City Club. Uh, and I'm grateful that you all are here today. None of us on the board take your being here for granted, and we appreciate you being so. I uh, would like to acknowledge a couple of our board members. Our treasurer, Omar Dagestani, is here somewhere. Word of warning, if you are not a member, he will know about it and he will see you. Just do yourself the favor and just become a member. And then our vice chair, Dan Givens, is here who puts all of this together. And while I'm doing shout outs, I see MB and Amanda just hitting the door. Our staff is, I'm biased, but they are amazing. You get to clap for them too, if you'd like. Our sponsors for today are Ardmore Roderick, Loyola University of Chicago, and White & Company. Thank you so much, sponsors. We appreciate you. I am not going to detain you any longer because I think people are hungry, and it is Maggiano's after all. So I'm going to ask Monsignor Ken Vila to come up and bless the food. And for those of you who had already started, maybe you can talk to the big guy and get a, get a freebie there. Good afternoon. Sheriff Dart, what has happened in these last years, and even what happened yesterday in Monterey Park, helps us understand that law enforcement needs our assistance in prayer, in gratitude, in all that they're doing and dedicating themselves. Today, you represent law enforcement. And so we pray for all those who have gone before us in the line of duty and all those who have been killed through violence in our nation, in our state, in our county, and in our city. And we just pause for a moment of prayer to remember these. Amen. Peter Marshall, the former chaplain of the Senate, said, if you're looking for a life without difficulty, remember that great oaks are made strong in contrary winds and diamonds are made beautiful under pressure. We've been in some pretty contrary winds these last years and the government and families and life has been under pressure. And we see in all of these challenges the opportunity to better, to come together and work as one. We pray for our city and our state today. Ask God to bless the food we share, the friendship that's here, all the families that are represented. And today in Chicago, there are some who are hungry. May they have bread. And may we who have bread always hunger for justice and peace. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. So my next job is to bring two gentlemen to the stage. I would have liked to have just been a fly on the wall when what, when Dan started working for Sheriff Dart. I think he was like 13 or 14, as legend has it. I don't know. But I would love to just hear some of their stories and some of the things that they discussed way back when, um, when Dan was just getting involved in politics. And I'm 
not even sure what Sheriff Dart was doing at that time. If you're wondering why I'm not reading formal bios, it's because you can go to our website and you can see all that stuff. But to see these two gentlemen who have had a long-standing history, I'm not even sure how long they've known each other. I just know it's been a long time. Um, I think this is going to be a wonderful discussion. I'm excited to hear what they have to talk about and to um, solve all the problems of Cook County. That's what's getting ready to happen right now in, in, in Sheriff Dart's office. So I welcome to the stage our Vice Chair Dan Gibbons and Sheriff Tom Dart. Whatever the... Thank you, Jackie. Is this on too? There you yeah. go. Awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. Ah, cool. Hello, everyone. For those of you who are regulars here at City Club, you understand that we're uh, we're breaking a little bit from tradition in a number of ways. Not uh, just today, and not just with this sort of fireside chat without a fire. Um, I, I could remedy that. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been known to set many. I actually may have. Seen some of those growing up. Yes. I, Jackie mentioned, so I, I have to say out of the gates that I, Tom and I do have, the Sheriff and I do have a little bit of a history, and it's mostly because his mother, Marge Dart, was one of my absolute favorite people in the world um, and, and really turned me on to social studies, which it was at what we called it at the time, and then I got involved in politics when Tom first ran for office. And uh, worked for him a couple times on Mayor Daly's campaign and elsewhere throughout the years. Uh, so it really is an honor for me to be here um, and, and, uh, and, and be able to and my talk mom was the teacher at St. Barnabas. And the, the hook was if Dan didn't work on the campaign, he was going to get an F. <laughs> so I think I got a D. Yeah. Oh, she, 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 she was Tim very, Joyce is. She taught half, half the South Side. I know Tim I know. Joyce is here. We've got all your your brother Tim. So your mother is an amazing amazing woman. I think very highly of you, and we are not biased and nonpartisan. But I have to at least put that out oh, there. Thank you. And 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 kind of with that in mind, um, knowing at least me knowing where you where you came from, could you step back a little bit? You've got an incredible career in public service, um, and. Uh, you know, through the Illinois General Assembly, the prosecutor's office, the, the uh, and clearly the sheriff's office. What step back a little bit for me and just talk about big picture? What's what's at the core of all of that? And and where did it? What's at the core? Where did it come from? How are you guided? Um, the core is a series of poor career choices <laughs> uh, that have culminated in this. Um, no, no. And, you know, one thing I just want to mention, folks, really quickly before I got going here, uh, all of us collectively lost a lot yesterday. Uh, Lynn Bramer passed away, and I'm sure many of you listened to him. I did all my life. And he was a phenomenal person on the radio. But for those who met him in person, just an amazing man. I used to run into him at charitable events where he would go time and time again to just give and give and give. And so... Um, it was a huge loss, not replaceable. Um, but I just want to mention that. But talking about my philosophy, Dan, it, it was something where, for me, in, in this job, it was similar to what I had done when I was in the legislature, a, a little bit when I was a state senator, I guess, but mostly in the legislature. It was a, attempting to bring reason, logic, for lack of a better word, to complex issues, to take important issues and figure ways to use 
data and logic, not series of anecdotes, not series of press hits and things like that, to really direct systemic change. And for me, I really have, you know, always had a hard time explaining to people why it is I love what I do because they all think, you know, I either should run for something else or I should have my head examined. Take your pick. Um, I think but, those are two questions that actually are, are <laughs> forthcoming. Yeah, so. exactly. Both of them. The one about my head exam is coming from my brother. Um, but the reality is, is like when you look at the number of offices that are out there where you can really be impactful immediately. So I, I enjoyed some of my time in the legislature, but it was a pretty torturous 11-year sentence. But the reality of it is most of the changes you make there are down the road in a little bit of wishful thinking and how they're going to be implemented. Here at the sheriff's office, you were able to immediately affect change, immediately. We have no need to go to some other body or something like that. So with the criminal justice system as a whole, but like particularly different aspects of it, that's what I wanted to do. And so, like, for example, with the jail, it always I found it just perplexing The jails all around the country, everywhere, were driven by either no data or anecdotal data, basically, at best. I mean, you, heaven forbid, if you're a reporter or a citizen or, heaven forbid, an administrator at a jail, good luck finding any data. I mean, it just doesn't exist. You can get basic things, you know, how many people are in there, um, things along that, but that's like it. And yet people, rightfully so, are obsessed appropriately about crime and how we can get our arms around it. But yet, even though we know that the criminal justice system, particularly the the back end of it, is so broken. I mean, you think about it. Seventy percent of the people who are leave a prison setting come back in in three years. I mean, think about that. Any company that had that track record would be out of business. That seventy percent of the stuff you did broke in three years, but yet we just kept doing the same old thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. And a lot of it was because there was never any data. There was never any data that would take you there and so, say, this is so what you're you using. Do. You're using data to correct simple problems that you that are in, in your control. So is that simple it, problems, in, in the jail, for instance, like, could you give us some examples of what are things that you have implemented that you haven't needed a, the rest of the country and the world to tell you? You, you relied on your data. You sat down. You said, this can be tackled this way. Give, it, give us a couple of examples so, of that. So it, is, it goes from literally the, the ma- uh, macro to the micro. So we started with the macro and saying, listen, we know factually that 70%, 70% of the people that come into the jail then go right back to the community. And we also know that the majority of people who are subsequently arrested for crimes have had these other connections with being arrested previously. So why in God's name would you not focus on that group to try to change behavior? And so... When I started looking at it, I came to find out, for starters, that our data system was a DOS-based computer system. Mike Sheehan was amazing. He got it started and getting us into the 21st century. But think about it. We all have computers, our cell phones in our pockets, and we were operating this with a DOS-based system. And I always tell people, it's like, if you are serious about anything in this world, you take data and you study it. We had none. And I looked around the country And that was the norm everywhere. So we started bringing data together so that every single person coming into that jail now was going to be analyzed. It was then going to be us using all the things we've learned, steering them toward a path where they won't come back. So when we analyzed them, we found overriding mental health issues. They went into our mental health programs that were extensive, best in the country. 
And then we followed them when they left. We connected them on the outside. If it was a substance abuse, a lot more co-occurring. We had them in those programs. Once again, connected them on the outside. None of that. That's so the data. Data turned to human. I mean, there's there's yeah. there's somewhere here where the, that rubber meets the road, right? Where you 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 see the numbers, you see the data, but it it ultimately ends up with a, a human touch and a in, in an actual holding hand. Yes, exactly, Dan. Everything was unique. It was unique to every single individual. And every single individual got those analysis. Every single individual, we looked at their educational background, where they came from, their neighborhoods, what opportunities they have there. And then we offer this array of programs that is, there's no correctional facility in the country that has more than we do. And no one making these connections. And we have a video, I just wanted to play it really quick, that just shows you what happens on intake at our place, which is so different than everywhere else. Jails have historically been treated only as places to house people awaiting trial. Yet nearly 70% of those who enter Cook County Jail go straight back to the community, not to prison. That is why the jail is leading the way in making custody a place to turn lives around with access to mental health treatment, substance use programs, education, job training, and life skill assistance, among other critical services. Such efforts are possible thanks to Sheriff Thomas Dart's one-of-a-kind individualized assessment and strategic assignment process. The IASA program aims to reduce recidivism by addressing criminogenic needs through targeted program recommendations after analyzing changeable risk factors that contribute to criminal behavior. The primary components of the IASA program are the offender risk and need assessment and an oral interview. Evaluation responses are paired with staff recommendations, security considerations, estimated length of stay, and medical and mental health needs to inform restorative programming and release planning. Critical to this process is the interview, conducted by a social worker. It gathers important facts about the individual, informs them about options, and determines what programs may work best for them. While, unfortunately, many individuals in custody refuse programming, about 60% are receiving critical services, thanks in large part to IASA. The Cook County Jail has invested heavily in programming geared toward all levels of interest and need. About 75 civilian personnel, including clinicians, work with partner providers and volunteer organizations to facilitate scores of classes, events, and meetings each week. The jail's programs and services include substance use disorder treatment with a 90-day program for men and women as well as regular AA and NA meetings. Also offered are the Landmark Mental Health Transition Center that facilitates group and individual therapeutic sessions five days a week. Job training programs including an award-winning chef-run culinary program. Education is addressed with high school to college level classes hosted by partners that include DePaul University and UIC. Life skills courses which assist with resume writing and interview techniques. And specific help for mothers, fathers, veterans and young men who want to help end the violence in Chicago. It was just incredible. So I mean pretty much every program that they offer here is, is really awesome. Everyone that's involved is very very you know involved with it they want to you know try to excel it is not like 
you get over here and you just over here to just be here and waste time. You get over here and they draw you in. They make you feel like, you know, hey, this is this is your time. You, you, you can spend it however you want to, but when you're actually in it, you feel like this is something I really want to do. This is something I really want to be involved in. And because they care, it makes you really feel like, you know, hey, I really want to care. I really want to do this. The staff at the Cook County Jail are very proud of this work to help those ordered into custody and address some of society's systemic challenges. Tens of thousands of individuals participate in such programs and receive critical services at the jail every year. In fact, the IASA process has led to thousands of individuals accessing important services and programs on any given day. So, I mean, that sort of summarizes what our whole philosophy is. Like, we identify people, what their needs are, and we plug them into programs that can either help fix issues they may have or to give them opportunities they haven't had before. Nobody else does this anywhere else in the country. To me, it was just completely logic-driven. And I have to mention, couldn't do this but for the volunteer organizations I have. I mean, honest to God, there's a program called Contextos where a woman named Deborah Gittler comes in all on her own, teaches individuals how to write their memoirs, which is this cathartic thing that they do that is absolutely stunning when you see it. I have people coming in from beyond Chicago that helps me with things. Mm -hmm. Loyola University, I don't know what I would do without them. They've been helping me from beginning to end on so many things for basically 16 years now. And all these other universities coming in. But the key is that overriding plan so these things can be plugged in. And frankly, our biggest, not challenge, but our newest goal is really working with the children of detainees because what has been forgotten, ignored, whatever you want to call it, is that there is stunning, stunning data out there that shows if you are a child of an incarcerated person that it's not even like a close call. Your chances of being engaged with the criminal justice system is five times greater. The number of kids who have parents who are incarcerated is in the millions. And yet, yeah. yeah, and then at the same time, we're the only jail that tracks whether kids come in for visitation. So what I sized up a while ago was this is a perfect inflection point. We can intervene with these families when they're coming for visitation. So we've redesigned an entire visitation structure now where it sounds crazy that the structure is going to change things. But if you could just see how horrific the visitation structures are in every jail and prison in the country because they do it to save manpower. So they're just these benches, one right next to each other with glass in between you, where people are yelling through holes, usually unpleasant things while there's a child right here. Our new setup is we're already doing it now. It's in person, not across glass, across a table. People can touch each other. There's books all over the place. There's games all over the place. The new structure we're going to have, though, is going to have rooms off the side where people are going to be able to get everything from eye examinations to testing and whether or not there's educational deficiencies to mental health-related issues, domestic violence issues. We're going to have all these services brought to this one point to work with these families. And the notion is we're going to stop this. We're going to stop it here. My son taught chess at the jail, first to the detainees, and then he taught their children. And by doing that, their kids were then all able to play their dads via uh, Zoom chess matches, which was just so marvelous, building these connections. Yeah. Stuff. But once again, the data saying that we are a bunch of fools. If we aren't taking advantage of the fact we have these families here, let's work with them. And so 
as I said, from the programming, which we do extensively across the board, working with the families, to eliminating things that there was not only no data to support, but actually data saying the opposite, solitary confinement. Every single jail and prison in this country uses it. We haven't used it for six years now. Why? Because it was thoughtless. Data showed that sensory deprivation was wildly harmful. And then when we started doing it, we found that when we did it, the assaults on our staff dropped off the cliff. Why? All that aggression was gone. And it wasn't that hard. It took us a while to get people to buy in and stuff, but it was something where this was something, same philosophy, data-driven, but with this thoughtful approach to keep peeling this thing apart. And once again, Dan, when you have so many people entering the facility and then going right back to the community, can you think of something more reckless than putting someone in a solitary setting for, say, three months, and then on uh, three months and one day, he's released to the community? He's home now. He hasn't seen or touched a human in three months. Let's see how this thing works. You know what's going to happen. So it's been this constant sort of analyzing, approaching these from a different way. And so we've done that throughout what my time here, um, but we have more of it we're doing. I have a lot more on my agenda. Now, this is, and what I'm hearing a lot is what, what you're doing in the jail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question among, I mean, just by looking at some of the questions that have already been submitted and, and just living in the city, there, there's a crime issue. What are you seeing out on the streets? And obviously, I think part of your job, right, is to is try to stop that from happening before. So we've, we've talked about what happens inside the jail and, and how you're able to hopefully stop that, you know, stop, stop that the pattern the continuous. How do you stop getting people in or people now that now there's, there's plenty to talk about and plenty of fingers pointing in various directions where, what is, what is the issue right now with public safety in Chicago? And, and this can go and I'll, I'll, I can go into a couple different directions, but what's the issue from, from your perspective what data are you seeing? What trends are you seeing? What can you do as the sheriff's office to help not just Chicago, but obviously the county and the surrounding area? Well, one of the things that we did is we've been adding more police for years now. So my police department. So I have a, a group of deputies that uh, run the jail in, in a correctional setting. I have deputies that do evictions, run court security. But then I have my own police department. And that's increased 30% since I started. Why? Because of the crime issues. And I knew that that's why I needed. And the county board's been fantastic in helping me fund those positions because we need that. And, yes, there's loads of ways to approach the, the crime issue on the street. And there's a load of things. There's no one thing. There's a load of things we need to do. But we clearly not only have to have police, they have to be well-trained, and we need more of them. And it's not just me saying, let's add more people to my office. My office is about uh, almost 2,000 people less headcount than from when I started in 2006. This is just trying to figure out a smart way to do it. And when you ask the question, you know, what is this, once again, overarching issue out there? It, it really starts and stops with the guns. It really does. You know, obviously there's a lot of debate now with the assault weapon ban and anything like that going on. It, it's the guns. Everybody has them. Every year now, we keep breaking our previous year's record on the number of guns just my department takes off the street. They're everywhere. Everywhere we pull people over, and my God, it used to be an anomaly to have an extended magazine on a gun. Now that's like all we get is extended magazine. And is there going to be some fool who's going to sit there and say, well, no, that has a legitimate purpose? There is none. There is none. 
There is none. A fool can run with that all they want and talk about how they got to go to their target range and they need their extended magazine. That's a fool. That's a fool. The reality is these guns are everywhere. They're so lethal. And then when you do the things like putting these switches on them that make them fully automatic, the lethality out there right now, we have never seen it before. So what the General Assembly just did was wildly helpful. It's going to move the needle somewhat. But there was no one who was sitting there saying crime problem solved. It's not. It's not. There's a lot more that needs to be done here. And it really starts and stops with having well-trained police departments because, you know, a lot of the emphasis is on the Chicago Police Department and whatever issues, whoever's talking about the time there. But we deal with the whole county. And I can tell you, particularly in the south suburbs, oh, my God. I mean, any given moment, we're, we, every day we get a phone call from a department saying, hey, we're, we don't have anybody for the night shift. Or we have no detectives today. Um, are you able to just supplement there? How, how does yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, Dan, but it's, nobody in their right mind would ever say this is a thoughtful, logical way to run right, anything. Right. Is that let's like, wait and see what rings tonight and see who we can pull, peel off. Because in the meantime, when we bolstered our police department, it was to go after specific crime issues that once again the data pointed us to. So mm-hmm. we went into the Austin community that at the time, about six or seven years ago, was seeing the largest spike in shootings at the time. And so we slowly put people in there to the point where like, two years ago, three years ago, we opened up our own sheriff's police station in the Austin community. And if you look at it, the data in Austin shows the decrease in shootings and homicides is greater than anywhere else in the city. And I would be lying to you if I said, that's all because of us. No, we have this great partnership with CPD. We've added more people, though. We have more people who aren't necessarily responding to 911 calls who are able to do community policing. Our folks are out on bikes in the summertime. In the winter, they do amazing things, not just the policing, but we have this amazing program that Pat Flannery in my office works, where we go into the libraries, we work with the kids in the community. We have this amazing connection to the schools out there. So this holistic approach. So we're doing that. We've moved some people to downtown Chicago because of the issues recently. Now we have one full-time office and half of another office right down here because of the violence. And so we've been surgically using the data to try to bolster this. But at the end of the day, you need the physical people to do it. And, uh, you know, as they say, guns, number one, two, social media, what used to be like just a disagreement between you and I that blew over because uh, you left the bar and we cooled off after that. No, they're on their phone until two in the morning going back and forth. And then all of a sudden this thing gets ratcheted up and now you diss me. So I'm going to go by. I'm not going to try to shoot you, but I'm going to shoot up your house. We, Chicago, get those calls all the time. Um, shoot up the house. You then say, okay, I'm going to shoot him. And now it just keeps, yeah, it, it turns this stuff, it, it escalates it. I mean, it's like literally putting it on steroids. So those two things have led to this. And I'd be lying to you if I said, we, we, everyone, we have a really solid plan here. No, this is going to take time. It's going to take a lot of patience by people who don't deserve, they don't, we shouldn't require patience of them. You know, these are amazing people who are in, at times, war zones. And it's just horrific. And so we've got to start doing the different things we know can be helpful. Salt weapon bans, helpful. You going to solve the problem? I mean, of course not. Nobody said that. Um, helpful. Extended magazines, helpful. But we need more people out there to be able to pull these things off. Because as I said, my calls keep escalating. There's no end in sight. <laughs> so much there and so much to and continue to unpack. Um, and the other part, too, I just want to mention to you that it comes up frequently in these discussions and it's so relevant. 
our department, Chicago, everywhere else, the majority of the attention goes as well as should to the shootings. But the majority of the calls we all get are mental health-related calls. And so for us, that's something that we knew, you know, Commissioner Degnan and I talked about this early on. I was trying to find something scalable because there's some great plans out in Oregon, some other places for doing things, but they're really expensive to do them in a place as big as this. And so we came up with something we developed where we use iPads. And so our officers now have iPads when they go out. And what does that mean? When they go to the mental health calls, which is the predominant one, we have an ability to put a mental health professionals on instantaneously. And so we're doing that in our jurisdiction, but also eight communities have signed up for it. And we have 14 more that are coming on board because in the event someone comes up with a better model, Dan, I'm on board. But most of the other ones are very, very expensive, very labor intensive. And you know what? Uh, the people shouldn't have to wait, you know, another two, four years until we get around to it. This is something we're doing now. It's having an amazing impact. Um, I have a video. I just don't know what my time constraints are now, if I can play it or not. We have plenty of questions. And what, how many? Uh, I think this is a short video. Let's do a short video. Yeah. And I'll, I'll yeah. go through a couple more questions. Under the sheriff's new program launched this year, officers are equipped with tablets. Here's a demonstration. Treatment response team, this is Brittany. Hi, Brittany. I have an individual that would like to speak to you. I'm going to pass you to them. The officer on scene hands the iPad to the person in need of help. Ellie Montgomery, the treatment response team leader, has stepped in as a person in need. What's going on today? Um, I, I don't really know what to do. Do you feel safe at home right now? So in certain mental health emergencies, they can instantly connect a person in need with one of the department's licensed clinicians. Everyone that we work with in the community knows what a cell phone is, and they're used to FaceTime. So the moment they have that device and they see non-officer, a clinician, a mental health professional who can talk to them through this device instantly, you start seeing them calm down probably would have got violent. Take the case of 19-year-old Jordan, seen here speaking to a team member on a tablet after Sheriff's Police responded to a disturbance at her family's home. I can't talk to just anyone. I can't, like, call people my friends because of what they do to me. Like, I'm sick of being used. And Not only did the incident end peacefully for everyone involved, even the officers, no one was charged criminally, and Jordan got the help she needed. Sometimes the police can be intimidating as it is, especially someone who has been encountered with them before, and it's never been a good experience. So it gives everyone a chance to feel like they're safe and they're being heard. So we find a lot of people that are in this neighborhood that are suffering from addiction. You call, we'll help. We first showed you Montgomery's team in action last year, canvassing communities where drug use is rampant in response to the opioid crisis. You give me a call and I'm going to help you. Okay. All right. They're taking a similar proactive approach with mental health with a crew of clinicians on call. A lot of times the calls are unpredictable, so they come at all hours of the day. Sometimes even if they don't accept help at that moment, they'll call us back. What if they break it? What if they do When this? the program first launched, veteran officers had doubts. I'm not sure this is going to work. But the sergeant's skepticism softened after a recent mental health call. I have a person in, in crisis. And after FaceTiming with a team member, the man who was erratic and threatening suicide. He walked to the ambulance without an issue. 
The sheriff started with 35 tablets. He plans to double that number and expand the program to include other police departments countywide. The feedback is overwhelmingly positive, both from the citizens whose houses we come to because they're in this horrible situation, and from our officers. So, as, so as I mentioned, and I, I know you got a question, I, I, that's, you know, all around this country, people are struggling with that because everyone knows law enforcement are not the people that should be going to these calls. We don't want to go to these calls, but that's what it is. Just today, uh, last over last night, I was reading our police reports from last night. We had multiple calls, but two jumped on me. One was an individual, 35 years old, was released from the hospital a day or two ago to his father. The father and him got in a fight, ended up with his mother. His mother then he was trying to calm him down, and he said, if you try to give me any more tea, I'm going to hurt you. So they call us because there's, is there a crime? a crime? Yeah, there is, but yet it needs the mental health component. Component, which is what we provide. So it's what needs to be done, and hopefully it's catching on. Was to say it's it, expanding. It is, yes. it is. And, and thanks for being at the forefront of that. We just had Dr. Vic Murthy here from the Surgeon General, and the sole topic that he discussed, and if anyone hasn't seen that, please go to the website. It was all about teen mental health. I mean, we could go for hours and days on mental health. Oh, yes. And, and, and we will. As City Club, I think we're going to tackle that a little bit further because now we're, we're talking about things that just haven't been discussed before. Mm-hmm. And on that note, I mean, really, with, how do you handle all that? I mean, how do you keep your mental health intact when you're dealing and seeing some of these horrific things over so many years? You have kids to get home to. You can't just shut that off on a, on a Sunday, right? You, you how, do, how are you doing with, with all I, that? And how does... My wife and I have, uh, uh, my oldest is a boy and then four young girls, and they keep me wildly engaged in wildly crazy things. Um, yeah, uh, it used to be Not mostly Barbie-related stuff, but now it's gotten to a different level. But it, it's so funny because I leave the job and I go home, and it's just it's such a joy. I, I've been religious for six, the last 16 years. I take all my kids to school in the morning, and then at that point in time, my day goes rapidly downhill from there. That's like the last good thing that happens to me. But then you get home and you see them and you got these little crazy little problems. And then your mind sort of like dials it out a little bit until the phone rings. But, um, but yeah, they are amazing help. They are. There's that and the three dogs. Kids can do. Yeah. We do have a couple of current issues that we thought maybe sure. we'd tackle. I've, I've collected a couple of questions. I'll combine and, and, uh, we have, uh, Feral- Terry and uh, Dwayne Deskins were both asking. I think these are, that's what I was, asked, I was showing you. These, I think they're pretty similar, um, or at least the same, same topic. Um, so that those sheriffs around the, around the state, you know, that are against the, the governor's ban on, or the government's ban on assault rifles, how does that work? And, and Dwayne Deskins, who's here, also asked, um, you know, there are certain rules that, that some people think they don't have to enforce, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer, so I, and I don't know if you know the answer of these other jurisdictions, but how do you see that happening? We could talk about it, especially on the assault rifles, um, but there are other issues. There's abortion. There are other issues out there where certain, all of a sudden local sheriffs are getting thrown into the mix, and there, some are being political, some are being, you know. Yeah, and, you know, Dan, it's funny because, um, A, we're, we take an oath to uphold the law, A, you know, not our ver- version of it, the law. Um, <laughs> Uh, be wildly premature. I mean, I, I don't even think the state police has got the rules all laid out how this is going to play out because people have already gone to these notions that people are kicking in doors and all this stuff. I often tell people, I go, do you mind if I like throw this uncomfortable thing called facts into it? Uh, 
right now in Cook County, we have uh, 35,000 people in Cook County who have a revoked FOID card. So that means they've either committed an offense, there's a domestic violence-related issue, uh, mental health issue, and it's been revoked. Only, uh, 75% of that 35,000, so I'm going to do the math, have not turned in their guns. I, my, up until about six months ago, I was the only law enforcement agency in the entire state that had a team that went knocking on the door saying, listen, your FOID card's revoked. you got to turn over your guns. So if we aren't even going to the homes where people have revoked FOID cards to get those guns out, how, what do you think is going to happen with somehow trying to go to the doors of people with assault weapons? My point is, it's a noble thing to do. It's going to take a while to have it flushed out for people to be jumping out there now and saying, we're not going to do, not going to do what? No one's explained to you what it is you're being asked to do. You're not going after FOID cards right now. I mean, FOID cards, the guns inside those houses. And you're already jumping to this. It, it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. So I think the more prudent thing would be to say, A, we enforce the laws that exist. We do have manpower issues. We all do. So where is that going to fit in your pecking order? You know, that would be unique to that sheriff. And that sheriff could then go to the voters at the election time and say, this is where it fits in my pecking order. Not because I'm avoiding the law, but I don't have enough resources to do X, Y, and Z. And then it's up to the you know, legislature or the governor to say, okay, if you don't have the resource, we'll put it. That's what I suggested with the Floyd card thing. Let's have regional task forces because these departments don't have enough to even do their patrol anymore, let alone knock on doors to get revoked guns away from people. Um, and that's where, you know, a lot of this stuff sounds really good in paper, but you have to get into the weeds here because, as I said, 35,000 and 75% of them haven't turned their guns in yet? I mean, that's frightening stuff, scary stuff. Absolutely. Um, and I could really quickly jump to the next question, which is who's, whose fault is this? It's, it's a little, little bit loaded, right? I've yeah. got about two, I have two or three different questions, and, and a couple of them are, are asking specifically on your view on certain people and offices and Office holders, I don't wear the city club. I, I think we keep it a little higher level. We, we, and, absolutely. There, we, all, we all love each other. There's a, there, we all love each other. But there's a lot of finger pointing, right? Yeah. There's a lot going on right now. And, uh, and I know it's not just unique to Cook County. That's another question I guess we could get to. But there's a lot of finger pointing. There are a lot of people involved. You know, there's a state, state's attorney. There's the police department, the police chief, the mayor, the Cook County president, the Cook County sheriff, the judges, the, the court system everybody's pointing this way and that way. What's, what's your, what's your take on all of that? And, and what's, what's, is it, is it a person? Is it an office? Is it, is it a specific problem or what's the big picture? I, I, I think that's the nature of things. And I don't think that's ever going to change. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of it is, is because frankly, it gets back to what I started with when talking about data, data um, right now, and it has been forever, the judiciary throughout the, the state, not Unicare, is not subjected to the Freedom of Information Act. So whether it's a reporter or me or anybody else, trying to get information from them, you, they just deny it. They don't have to do it, so they don't do it. And so my point is, is that we're all linked together. So if you don't have one of the entities being a transparent entity who's willing to show what they're doing, then you have a problem here. And I'm not just going to pick on, I have so many judges who are just phenomenal. Joy Cunningham's here. I mean, just amazing judges. Bring it up. But, but there, because it's shrouded, you can't tell the great 
from the mediocre, from the awful. And because when I was a prosecutor, I ran the spectrum. I had judges who were phenomenal, worked, you know, 12-hour days, held, held people accountable. And then I had other judges who literally worked two-hour days and just gave continuances to everybody. And there's no way to distinguish that. And so something like, like carjacking, for example, one of the things that's not beyond dispute is the majority of people arrested for carjacking are juveniles. The majority arrested. Okay, um, yet we see repeats coming back and forth. We've asked the judiciary in whatever form you want to do it, blank out names, whatever you want to do, what's happening when they're coming into custody so we can see if the program you're using isn't effective, it's not working, whatever program you're putting them in, whatever electronic monitoring you're doing is not effective. We just get nothing. We get nothing. And so you can't get at the problem then when you don't know if something's being used, if it's working or not. And so all of us have to, A, work together. Yeah, blah, 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 whatever. We all have to be transparent. We all have to have all of our data accessible to people. And let the, the public judge then. You know, they think you're a clown because you're putting your emphasis here or there. That's fine. And then you get voted out and, you know, do whatever you do with the rest of your life. But the reality of it is, is that there's too many of these entities that are cloaked in this, this sort of invisibility where you're, you can't fix problems then. And so, you know, it's just so unfortunate because, trust me, these are very complex issues. There's no one answer. Um, it's going to take a while to get there. But when you have certain parts of it that are not helping, okay, that just takes a very difficult problem and dials it up a lot. And we don't need that. Sounds fitting. It fits right into your, your logic and actually thoughtful approach to all of this. Um, you, I'm glad you hit on, on, on touched on carjacking because there were two or three questions about that. Um, and we are pretty much over time. So I just, you've, you've done plenty. One thing I'd like to leave here with, and, we, and, and, and if you have some, anything in closing you want to say, please add that also. No, but, the last hopeful note was from Monsignor. <laughs> well, that's not, I said your, your, so your mother would be so proud <laughs> that you're up here as, as a sheriff and, uh, and you know, one of Time Magazine's one of the hundred most influential people at, what, 46 years old? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I wasn't even the top three most influential in my house growing up. Um, what she'd be most, I think, yeah. proud of is Monsignor's, yeah. you know, nice comments about you. So always good to have you. And Monsignor actually did mention to me also that uh, Sister Kathy Ryan is here from uh, the president of Maryville, which uh, Jackie mentioned, meant to, um, meant to mention. And, and Jackie also was texting saying, oh, my gosh, I forgot to, to uh, recognize Anita Alvarez, a former uh, state's attorney. Anita Alvarez is here, too. So we thought we had the whole room. Uh, but, you know, a couple, a couple more, and I'm sorry if we missed any others. Um, but in, in closing, as far as I'm concerned, again, if you, don't, if you want to close with any other remarks, you're welcome to. We've, we've got to get going in a minute. Um, but you've got this great room of civic leaders, business leaders. You, you have figured out a way to take what, your resources and get things done. How can, how can we all be helpful and actually move that, that needle or move the ball forward and, and help you and, and all the great people that are doing good things? Yeah. Absolutely demand accountability. When I say that, it's, it's not like a you know sort of throwaway line. No, don't give up the notion that you, as a citizen, can't approach any of us you know fools in office and demand. I want to know this. I want to know this and that. And, and don't be put off with the talking points. Is you know 
I can just tell you that I see that so often and I want to retch when I see somebody just reading that. And then when they get asked a question, they just go right back to their talking points. And that my point is, is that business people should absolutely have a thoughtful, concise questions to give people. Um, nowadays, too, with Zoom and all the rest of it, there's so many like meetings. And, I mean, good ones. I'm not suggesting bad ones, but many aldermen had us doing uh, carjacking sort of seminars, and many of the residents were in it. So if you, your alderman, your state rep, your state senator, whatever it is, have thoughtful questions that aren't open-ended, like, what, what, how can we make this a beautiful world? No, that one's not going to work. Uh, say, why is it that you've decided to fund this and not that? Or why is it that your patrol structure is this as opposed to that? And really hold people to account because we aren't going to change this otherwise. And as they say in this really diffuse society now where everyone's on their phones and people don't do this, where they actually see other human beings anymore, um, we really need to be able to put the pressure on people to do that. And we're not helpless. We're not. We're not. As I say, between... Zoom and all the other ways that technology, which I'm not a big fan of, believe it or not, um, technology has opened up the ability for us to really get to people. But it's kind of being a thoughtful way, not just, you know, you sign on to some sort of chain saying vote for this bill, vote for that bill. Really, you have to take ownership of this thing. I mean, honestly, God, I can't emphasize enough to you. When I look at my children, um, I think to myself, there was never a moment when my mom and dad ever looked at me and said, you know, we're handing a more difficult world off to you, Tommy. Um, and when I look at my five kids, I just want to apologize. That's all I want to do. I want to say I'm so sorry. I am so sorry what we're doing to you guys. Whether it's global warming, crime, debt, take your pick. I just want to say sorry. And that's a horrible place to be. And so the reality is while we're still on this earth and we still have some breath left in us, we have to demand change and it has to be done. And it can only be done if we hold people accountable. That's that's great. I, I would like to say you 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 want to say sorry, but... They should be also, many of us should be saying thank you because you are making change. It's not going to change the world immediately, but appreciate all of the efforts thank that you. you have done to actually make changes on a person-to-person basis and, and, and make this city and county better. So thank you so much for being thank here. You. There's so much that we did not get to tackle. I know. We'll have to have you back. And, uh, and any, anybody who wants to sh- sign up for our vehicle tracking program, our carjacking vehicle tracking program, we have forms and stuff here. It's helpful things because one of the many uh, problems we've had with that is the automa- uh, automobile manufacturers have decided that it's too expensive for them to have a 24-hour hotline so that when a car is carjacked that we can immediately call them and say, track this car. And so we've come up with one way to get over a couple of the hurdles by pre-doing some things. So please... Before you leave, if you have an interest in that, um, I know we have some flyers and some stuff here on that. One simple way we can help, right? Yes. Um, thank you. Again, we're going to ask Jackie, uh, our chair, Jackie Robinson-Ivy, to come and join us to present our favorite prize and... Drum roll. Well, I can't let you pick because you... No, you know, <laughs> it's going to be me. Let's have Betty Lou Coy. Yes. Oh, of um, course. I, I don't know. He has a membership. I, just, it, I thought it was under there, but it's not. You can grab that, <laughs> So we do have an, uh, a raffle for a gift certificate to, I believe this one is to Chicago Cut. And before I say this. Um, Thank you. Before I say this, um, someone actually made a really, really good point because someone's trying to be kind to the environment and go cardless. Um, they missed out on the opportunity for um, putting their name in the bowl. So we got to fix that, Dan. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
but we hear you. Um, AJ Shah? So you know the deal, right? (laughs) Clearly he's not been coming often enough. Half the room can tell you the deal. You win the prize, you take me to dinner. It's a total joke. You don't have to take me to dinner. Enjoy your enjoy your uh, gift certificate. See, Amanda, uh, Sheriff Dart, you have your membership, right? How many of those do you have now? Uh, quite a few. Uh, and, <laughs> and, quite, and I quite, cherish quite them. Um, thank you all so much. We are over time. Sheriff Dart, we can't thank you enough. Dan and Sheriff Dart, you did a great, great job. Um, applause. We are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.